Um, are we good to go? Yeah, good. We'll make a start. So, uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Taking Stock After the Bell, uh, episode 25. Uh, here with my colleague James Hughes, as always, and we are delighted to be at the Finley Park Partners Office to meet with uh, Anthony Kingsley, the Chief Investment Officer. Anthony, good morning. Good morning. A uh, quick bio for, for those of you who are interested. So Anthony is the Chief Investment Officer of Finley Park Partners and a Portfolio Manager and Managing Partner. Anthony joined Finley Park in 2002 as one was one of the founding members along with James Finley and Charlie Park. Uh, he was appointed Chief Investment Officer in 2017 to oversee the investment team and take responsibility for investment decisions for the American Fund. Prior to joining Finley Park, Anthony worked at MFS Investment Management in Boston, um, working as an equity analyst covering various UK European sectors. Uh, and before that, out of university, Anthony joined Foreign and Colonial as a graduate trainee, uh, where he first met James Finley working on the American desk, where James ran the US Smaller Companies Fund and Investment Trust. Uh, Anthony has an economics degree from the University of University of Bristol, uh, and his hobbies include tennis, beekeeping, and calisthenics, <laughs> which I had to look up, which is uh, exercises that solely rely on body weight, such as pull-ups and handstands. So how's that going? That's pretty good. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a, um, I started out doing yoga about five years ago and sort of evolved a little bit into calisthenics. Um, so um, I always like to try new things. I wouldn't yeah, say I'm particularly good. good at it, but yeah. um, Instagram's been doing this to me actually because I do a bit of yoga and follow various people, and it has started showing some videos of calisthenics, but it's uh, it looks far too difficult for me. Yeah. So you might have to give us uh, <laughs> do, do some handstands and headstands afterwards. Yeah, yeah. well, we, when we turn the video off, I might, yeah. I might well, we thought we did that on the second time you come on <laughs> next time round, or we'll get you to doing some headstands yeah. and things. But um, I mean, the Finley Park American Fund has just crossed its 25th anniversary, which is quite a milestone. Um, I mean, I would say it's not quite achieved yet. We've just passed our 250th anniversary, which is fine, but you know, we, it's you, you're on 10, the road. It, exactly. So. <laughs> um, we've got a chart here of the performance of the fund in total return terms uh, since inception um, relative to the, uh, alongside the MSCI USA index, uh, and the fund is up 20x, which is um, pretty impressive. So the units were launched in 98 at $10 a unit, and I checked this morning, the unit price was 204 units, uh, sorry, $204 a unit. So mm -hmm. that's um, a pretty decent return, right? How's it been? Yes, it's been, uh, it's been fun. Um, and obviously we've, 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 we've managed through all sorts of different mm -hmm. market environments, mm -hmm. from um, bull markets, bear markets, um, Asian financial crisis, NASDAQ yep. correction, great yep. financial crisis, COVID, interest rates at zero, interest rates normalizing. So um, we've seen a lot of different types of environment, but have managed to compound um, reasonably well through that. Mm. Through do, we, do we know what the compound rate is, 13% or so? It's, it's just over 12, 12. After, after fees. 12% yeah. a year, so, yeah. you know. I was going to ask, what, what's, what's been the most challenging period? The most challenging period I find are the ones where fundamentals sort of diverge from reality and you're mm. left as a as an analyst as, mm. a, as a portfolio manager as a decision maker um, you just have to sort of put your hands up in those moments and say you know the market is a is a voting machine but in the long term it's a voting machine so I, I mean I'm referring to you know uh, meme stocks yeah. and yeah, I was uh, gonna say know, huge bubbles where yeah. um, uh, you, you just you know 
it, things sort of depart from kind of reality. Yeah. And but but uh, as I say, over time, <coughs> um, it, it's been enjoyable. We we try not to spend too much time thinking about the macro mm-hmm. and really are focused on companies you know mm-hmm. have we got the right companies that are going to compound and that's been the key to our success having the right companies that can compound earnings and free cash flow and, mm-hmm. and deliver that growth and so that's that's what we're sort of maniacally focused on yeah i think we can all get a little bit too bogged down in what's happening to yeah. ism services mm-hmm. and the job report every friday first friday of every month and etc etc and that in itself is kind of interesting potentially stimulating and if you're mm-hmm. you know a macro hedge fund that's great but if mm-hmm. you're you know, if you're trying to run a fund that invests in equities long only, you, you should be more worried about what the companies mm. are doing and how the companies are performing, right? So yes. that's quite a refreshing kind of... Particularly if you're taking a long-term view, which we do. You know, the average holding period um, for a stock in the fund is, is over five years. Mm. And so, um, you know, we're trying to sort of step back and take that, take mm. that long-term perspective. Mm. Well, part of the reason we wanted to have you on was something that's popped up quite a lot with uh, in in the podcast over the last few months and years is this sort of idea of kind of American exceptionalism, which may or may not be the title of uh, the today's podcast. But um, we've got a chart here of the U.S. equity market in blue uh, against the U- uh, MSCI World X USA. So essentially, you know, in red is the rest of the world. Um, and it's fair to say that the U.S. over the last this is thirty years um, has done pretty well, and has kind of the gap has opened and, and done. You know, U.S. equities have done materially better than the rest of world equities. So we were sort of hoping to kind of touch on some of the reasons of that. I've got the same chart shown slightly differently here, um, which is a, a one against the other, a sort of relative chart. So when this line is going up. Um, we can see that the USA is outperforming, and when the line is going down, that means the rest of the world performing. And, you know, just sort of one thing to highlight here, it's not always been the case that the US equity market has outperformed. There have been times in history when the rest of the world, notably from kind of 98 through to 2008-9, the rest of the world did a good bit better, uh, and to a degree in 2022 and, and, and mm. 2023 as well. So, you know, what we were sort of hoping to do really, Anthony, was try and sort of scratch the surface as to, you know, why we might think that be the case. I mean, I've got a couple of other charts which I might just touch on before we, we kind of move on to that. So um, we've got a chart here, the valuation of the US equity market on a very sort of simple price earnings multiple, i.e. how cheap or expensive are US equities relative to their profits. And we can see that there is a, you know, pretty reasonable gap between the valuation on the US versus the rest of the world. But, you know, there's good reason for that. And the next chart here we've got is... Um, the earnings progression and we can see you know you talked about how what's important is the company's earnings and how they're doing and that that blue line here shows that the the progression of earnings uh, on the US market versus the rest of the world and we can see it's been a lot stronger so I guess if you you know if you just sort of start at the beginning you know why do you think that US companies have some of these inbuilt advantages Uh, and then maybe we'll we'll ask you do you think it can continue which I think is probably what everyone wants to know (laughs) yeah no, I, I think that's, that's a, it's a really good question, and it's not one simple answer. It's really probably a series of factors which, when combined, create, um, I suppose, what I call a lollapalooza effect. You know, that was a term that I think Charlie Munger used when you have you know, things coming together and they, they magnify and they create this really sort of powerful, powerful impact. Um, so just stepping back, to start with, you know, it's a it's a very big country, three hundred million consumers. Um, uh, you can you can take a business model and you can leverage it yeah. quickly and easily <coughs> over a large 
group of customers. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be the first thing. Um, uh, and that's, I guess, in contrast to Europe. I mean, Europe has got 300 million people, notionally, but of course you've got, you do still have barriers and you have languages and you have you know differences. It's not quite the same as the US, yeah. is it? Precisely. Um, then you have very deep and broad capital markets. So, you know, when you think about not just the equity markets, but, you know, the early stage, the venture, yeah. private equity. Um, so those deep capital markets and, and a history of investing long term. I mean, the whole VC market is, mm-hmm. is, is really, you know, you take a very long term yeah. view. Uh, and, um, you know, they've, they've had that, that infrastructure in place for, for many years. And you've seen these companies that now dominate the S&P 500. You know, at one point, those were startups in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, whether it's Apple or Microsoft, (coughs) Tesla. Infamously famous uh, Facebook startup, wasn't it, at university? Um, Was it MIT? Facebook, exactly. Um, Google, uh, NVIDIA, you know, it was probably IPO'd, you know, 25 years ago. Um, So just this extraordinary, also, entrepreneurship, this culture of innovation, of investment, of entrepreneurship. Um, of shareholder friendliness. I think that's something that, that is perhaps underestimated, the, um, the ability to uh, drive uh, companies um, and business successfully mm. in a way that it's celebrated mm. um, and entrepreneurs are celebrated in, in America. And then you have a regulatory framework, a, a political and regula- regulatory framework, again, that allows businesses generally to thrive. Yes, you have some antitrust issues mm. which we may end up talking about some of these larger companies mm. sort of topic of the day. But um, you have, you know, so you have a lot of the infrastructure in place. Then in addition, I think you, over the last 10 years, you've had uh, energy independence. Mm. So, you know, a very low cost yeah, yeah, source of yeah. uh, guaranteed sort of energy supply. Massive boom, isn't it? America was an importer, now is an exporter of, of um, you know, um, of, of oil. Uh, and then a, a newer factor, probably in the last few years, is the reversal of this deglobalization. Mm. So reshoring and onshoring, which I think is a sort of, uh, those ones that I mentioned already, they're sort of enduring factors, and I think they've driven probably much of the last 30 years. But I think the reshoring and onshoring um, and reindustrialization of America is going to be an interesting one that I think will play out over the next 10 years. And uh, again, I think will help some of these domestic and, and smaller and medium-sized domestic companies. Mm. I mean, you sort of geographically, I get oh, uh, something the other day about talking about the Red Sea and how you know that's impacting Europe and not the US because geographically the US is a so big, so difficult to get to, um, and it's virtually self-sufficient in its own commodities. You, you know, it's got plenty of oil, it's got plenty of food. They're the basics, all the building blocks are there really. And and you're right about that that kind of entrepreneurial zeal as well. It's also yeah. got very friendly neighbours, north and south. And I looked at looked at import export data from Mexico I hadn't appreciated how much is being imported from Mexico now mm. and actually I think it's it's not quite 20% of imports it, it would think it was sort of in the teens but what I noticed what I saw was the imports coming in I think the original raw materials 45% of those imports came from the US in the first place mm. so as you say it's that reshoring and getting your manufacturing plants or your, your, your local producers is just closer to the country. Um, no, that's right. And, and it doesn't rely on global trade as yeah. much as, mm. as, as other countries. You know, it's self-sufficient in food, in energy. So as you say, you have these issues like the Red Sea, which are 
causing cause more problems for, for other countries than necessarily yeah. that, that does the, the US because of its yeah. mm. its situation. And then do you think that sort of the we're not going to talk about politics, but do you think the political framework is a hindrance or help? I mean, you touched on antitrust and things, and we've got an election. We don't want to talk about the politics of the election, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, is Amazon and Google, are they great because of the political framework or in spite of, in your view? Well, that's a really interesting question. So America has um, a business-friendly uh, pro-business culture. Mm. And so it's allowed mm. these companies, whether it's a Facebook or an Amazon and Apple and so on, to, to, to get quite large. But at the same time, America also has a long history of breaking up monopolies. Mm. So, you know, Facebook was allowed to acquire WhatsApp and, mm. and Instagram and so on. But, you know, Facebook will not be allowed to make acquisitions, I would say, going forward. Um, and they're under much closer scrutiny mm. of mm. Um, the uh, regulatory uh, authorities, the FTC. We'll hear a lot more about this, I think, in the coming uh, months and years. And um, to some extent, coming back to your question, you know, these are quite political. Obviously, there was a lot of, there were always a lot of questions around these social media platforms at a time of, of yes. elections, and no doubt that will rear its head again. Mm. And um, we, we shall see. But um, uh, I would say that is going to be a, a more of a headwind for those companies than it's been, you know, it's been a tailwind. Yeah. To, to allow them to get them to yeah, where, where, yeah, where, yeah. where Absolutely they are right. Absolutely right. And then on, on kind of valuation, and we'll, we'll put the chart back up again on the kind of the, the valuation of the US market. I mean, the, the gap is, is yeah, there's a sort of the, the, the Graham and Dodd kind of value manager in me somewhere um, mm-hmm. kind of looks at this and goes, well, you know, you surely buy the cheap one and sell the expensive one, don't you? Is that, is that I mean, is that right or wrong, do you think? So the valuation has expanded, as you see on this on this chart, and and it's it's coincident with the rise of these mega cap companies. Mm. So, which have been growing very fast, you know, revenues twenty percent, twenty five percent for for a decade, and doing so with very high returns, high returns on capital. High, you know, the, the business models of these companies are, you know, have been absolutely fabulous. Yeah. The scale economies, the the synergies, the network effects, um, and so uh, they've been growing fast and they've been increasing their returns on capital. So when you have high growth and high returns, um, the valuation is a function of the growth, the returns and the duration of those returns. And that is why you've seen that. I think if you X'd out the mega cap, com- the mega cap eight or the magnificent seven, which are 25 up to 30% of the index, you would probably find that the, the rest of the, the, the companies are not trading at those, no, those multiples. No, so then the fair. question <coughs> arises, well, what is the sustainability of these of yeah. the Magnificent Seven, which is a, another topic which we can, um, which we can well, cover. Look, but I think that explains why we've got, to some extent, why we've got to where we've got to. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I don't have enough off the top of my head, but I have a feeling that if you, if you do X out the Mag 7, the, the rest of the market looks kind of okay, a little bit more expensive than the rest of the world, but not materially so. Um, and then, but I think that, that's probably the that's probably our clients' biggest question, isn't it? Around the you know the magnificent seven or the mega eight is um, how can they continue growing at the same pace? And you know, surely there's more opportunities elsewhere. Um, you know, one of the reasons we we obviously own your fund, but um, it it's be in, yeah be interesting to see how these businesses keep performing going forward because they they have just been extraordinary. Mm. Um, and they've been really agile because obviously they went through, you know, I wouldn't say a bit of a bubble, but if you sort of look at Amazon in particular and Meta as well, 2020, 2021, yeah. obviously saw huge growth, probably over-invested, they probably overstretched themselves mm. a bit. And then they saw some issues in 2022 and, you know, some of the stocks really were 
properly mashed up. Well, Amazon was down 50%, Meta mm. was down 70%. Mm. But they, you know, they took an axe to their workforce and their cost base. And you know, we had Meta's results last Friday, and a, you know, a trillion dollar company was up 20% on the day, which I find pretty staggering. Um, and the main reason was because they brought their cost base down so much in the space of a year. Mm. So you're right, they've showed incredible agility through pretty big kind of turmoil the last two years, which you know continues mm. to surprise me. I don't know, it's interesting, we've, we've just taken on kind of Microsoft's co-pilot kind of AI chatbot thing, and we've just had it released into our, uh, into our PCs this week, and you, you know, that's another kind of strand that, that kind of Microsoft and another kind of revenue line mm. that they can generate, so mm. um, it is pretty interesting. Yeah, so we've, we've, uh, we're an all-cap fund, a mm. core fund investing in America, but very much an all-cap fund. Um, today, we have, you know, give or take, roughly 10% of the fund in these mega-cap mm. companies compared to 25 30% <laughs> yeah. uh, of the index. And uh, so we've, we've taken really a very selective approach, uh, ones that, that meet our uh, investment philosophy, mm. we think can be good compounders with a high inevitability of outcome. It's very easy to look look at last Friday, Thursday, Friday, and, and look at Amazon and Facebook, and um, but but we sort of step back from it. It might be interesting to hear about how we look at Amazon mm. and, and, mm. and Meta and why why we don't own those two. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say they're not fantastic companies, but um, I think I would look at it kind of on three vectors. The first <laughs> one is competitive intensity. Um, you look at the competitive intensity on Meta. And you know, social media, mm. uh, they were they're once the dominant platform, they're still very, very strong, but it took, I don't know how many months for TikTok to get to 100 million users. There are always rival yeah. social media platforms, there will continue to be, and uh, that is something that we, we are concerned about. Um, on, on the competitive in- intensity side on, on Amazon, um, you know, AWS is very, very strong, but um, you know, we're entering a new world of AI, mm. and uh, how will they be positioned in that regard? Um, you've got Microsoft, you've got Google, you've got, um, and you've got competitors on the retail front that, that you may not have had before. I mean, even TikTok is doing a lot of commerce. So, yeah, so I think competitive intensity is... Timu, isn't it, from China, who are um, in the, the online platform, yeah, that's pretty cheap. M- many others. So you've got the regulatory environment, which we talked about, and I think that's going to be a lot tougher. Um, Alina Khan at the FTC has been sort of on a mission to 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 look closely at, at Amazon. I think it's probably more on the retail side at this point. And um, you know, we mentioned Facebook earlier, how it's going to be difficult for them to mm. acquire. Um, I think the final point would be on capital allocation. Um, I mean, Meta is controlled by mm. Zuckerberg. Yeah. Um, you know, he went on this mission to uh, to spend a lot of money in the metaverse. Yes, mm. he's pulled back. I think that's one of the reasons why um, the stock's done quite well. But I think against that backdrop, it's quite difficult as shareholders to really have any control as to what yeah. the outcome is going to be. And equally, Amazon, you know, at times they will invest incredibly heavily into something, mm-hmm. uh, let the profits get squeezed. Yeah, right yeah. now, yeah. they're letting the profits they're grow and they're harvesting. But no <laughs> doubt, um, they will, you know, they will at some point probably be in investment mode again. Mm. Um, the AWS businesses requires a huge amount of capital spending. Yeah. Um, so. I think for various reasons, we just feel they're not quite as good fits with our investment philosophy. It's not to say they couldn't, yeah. couldn't be very successful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how about Alphabet? How do you view Alph- Alphabet through that lens on Google? Yeah, so Alphabet, um, we think um, the search business, 
we think uh, you know they're going to maintain a very high market share of that mm. for you know a, a, a relatively long period of time. Obviously, things can change there. It's quite hard to envisage using a different search function for all of us. Is I just yeah, from a personal point of view, I just can't ever imagine clicking yeah to try and find something and it not being. Good. It serves the consumer. It serves business. It's not. It's not a you know, consumer platform that is um, you know it's not quite as fickle. Uh, and so um, we think that core search business is strong with YouTube. Um, you've got all these other bets outside of the core, which uh, add up to um, you know, a, li- a little bit of the value, uh, with the majority being in, in search and advertising mm. and YouTube. And the stock is relatively inexpensive. Mm. Uh, if it does get broken up, broken up from a sort of regulatory mm. perspective, we think the sort of it's worth more on the sum of the parts. Yeah. And it's trading on gap earnings at a, at a reasonable multiple. So. Mm. Um, so that's how we look at YouTube's it. YouTube's potentially a long-term winner, possibly alongside Netflix in terms of kind of media and how we view. You know, I was thinking to myself this morning, I don't watch much linear TV anymore, apart from mm. Live Sport. It's you know, mainly uh, YouTube. Gladiators on a Saturday Gladiators on a Saturday yeah, my, my son, well, can we watch the next one? So I'm sorry, you've got to wait a week. He just <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't yeah. get his head around why you can't press play on the next one. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't own Apple in the fund and haven't done for a while? We, we've never owned Apple. Never owned Apple. Um, which, um, a three trillion market cap from, from relatively nothing, you know, has cost the fund, you know, in, in terms of opportunity cost. Mm. Um, but fortunately, we've been able to find other things that have managed to sort of compound sure. at an attractive level. And that have met our you know, investment philosophy checklist. So we will miss things. And um, you know, Apple obviously is a wonderful company, a remarkable company. It's not a great fit with our investment philosophy. I think what's, I mean, for the listeners, what, what's, <clears throat> what's extraordinary is to see how you compounded over time without owning all of these big companies. Mm-hmm. Because I think the view sometimes outside is you can't perform or you haven't been able to perform without owning the seven or the eight, and we talk about it a lot, but you you have performed despite having those massive companies um, that, that dominate the index. And mm. it's just, it's really interesting to see you can get these really good returns from your companies mm. by thinking about things differently, and arguably we're diversifying our risk mm. away as well. Well, that's right. And I think last year, t- uh, 23, was a good example of that. Um, I think the fund was up 27% um, mm. after, after fees. And... Uh, we owned uh, just a small percentage of the mega cap. Most of the performance came from a diversified group of companies in various different industries, um, many of which were mid-cap companies as we define them, so mm. sub-$50 billion market cap. Mm. I know that wouldn't be a mid-cap in, in some other uh, other markets. but um, top, top end of the for 200, yeah. isn't it? $50 billion. <coughs> Certainly yeah. is, yeah. But it's come back to sort of AI, which has been the kind of you know buzz phrase du jour, and yeah, it's getting some traction, it's taking off, and, and you know maybe... ChatGPT is the potential threat to Google search. We don't know, but it will, we'll skim over that for the time being. But um, there's lots of sort of talk about, you know, how do we sell shovels in the gold rush? And NVIDIA's, you know, clearly been the classic kind of example. Um, but do you want to kind of touch on uh, what I think is a really interesting stock um, that you do own in the fund that's potentially a kind of good play on this and how this kind of fits in with your philosophy? Yes, absolutely. Very happy to. So Accenture uh, is a IT services consulting company, um, very large, um, originally a, a, a partnership, Anderson Consulting, and it IPO'd. Oh, did it come out of Arthur Anderson, did it? Back in the day? Yes, it, well, it was Anderson Consulting. Oh, right. and, okay. um, and so it came Anderson out at the time of the Wellcom failure, or yes. was it? Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, separated. And... Uh, they have uh, grown and grown and grown. Um, 
largely organically, but also through you know, very small little tuck-in acquisitions. Today, they have three quarters of a million employees, um, most of whom are you know IT consultants and and uh, technologists. And um, when you look at the business today, um, it's a hugely fragmented market. So even though they're probably the biggest IT service company in the world, um, they, with 60 odd billion dollars of revenue, they probably have you know, a low single digit market mm. share of the addressable opportunity. Now, um, there's, there's various different angles I can go with here, Accenture, but, but uh, you, you mentioned AI. Um, there was a recent survey think that 97% of CEOs said, you know, AI is a priority for them. Mm-hmm. But I think less than 5% of them had actually sort of begun the journey. Right. And, you know, what, what Accenture really thrives on is change. You know, if the world wasn't changing, uh, there wouldn't be a lot of business. As long as, as long as there's change in the world, and we're going through a period of rapid change, you know, Accenture has consistently adapted their business model to suit sort of where we are. So when it was, we moved from, you know, on-prem to, to cloud, yeah. you know, that was a big opportunity. Um, and now, uh, AI. So AI, <coughs> excuse me, $450 million of revenue this last quarter, which is relatively small yeah. on, a, on a $16 billion a quarter base, mm-hmm. but nevertheless um, growing rapidly. Um, what's actually really interesting is that in order to... Um, uh, in order to do AI well, you really have to be digitizing your business. You have to be moving your business to the cloud. Mm-hmm. And uh, the cloud represents over $30 billion of Accenture's revenues. So $30 billion of, say, 65 is cloud. Yeah. That business continues to grow double digits. Cloud penetration is still relatively small. There's mm-hmm. a huge runway. And what Accenture will say is, if you want to prepare for AI, you need to biz- move your business to the cloud. So, in fact, that business, as they as they put their business mm-hmm. in the, into the cloud, these big corporates, um, you know, in a way is a play on AI. And then you've got these areas of focus, where, where, whether it's financial markets, uh, whether it's energy, life sciences, mm-hmm. these strategic bets that they're making. Uh, and that business is ramping. So 450 million of 16 billion is, what, 3% or so? in a quarter, but no doubt we'll see it become 5%, yeah, 8%, yeah, 10%. And I think, I think by the end of this year, you know, it will, it will, st- it, this is a sort of picks and shovels way of getting mm. exposure to mm. it. You can see the stock started to perform quite it's well, but I, I think there's, there's a lot of runway here. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to see it hasn't, hasn't quite got back to, I mean, it's some way off the peak of kind of Presumably that, that, that peak in 21 was a kind of work from home <clears> kind of needing in consultants to sort out your work from home hybrid offering and then all got a bit bubbly did it it did they had you know this is a business which should compound revenues in the in the high single digits say mm. you know, six seven eight nine um it was growing over 20 percent a year and yeah. so yeah. we had to go through a period of digestion of slowdown but ultimately um you know, Satya Nadella has said that IT spending will move from, I think he said this a few years ago, you know, 5% of GDP mm. to 10% of GDP. So IT spending is a, uh, a GDP plus growth business. Sure. And therefore, if Accenture is uh, participating in that and in fact taking market oh, share, they sure typically well. grow out, outgrown the IT services market, they should be able to grow in the high single digits, expand margins, make acquisitions, buy back stock and compound earnings in the you know, in the teens. So mm. it's a stock actually we held for probably close to a decade. Right. We then didn't hold it. And uh, we came back in sort of at some point last year when, when the stock had sort of moved sideways mm. a bit. 
um, just, for the, just, just for the just for the listeners and the audience <coughs> of doubt, by the way, we, we don't do individual stock tips or solicitations to buy or sell securities on the podcast. So um, so please don't rush out and buy a load of Accenture. However, um, interesting nonetheless to hear all mm. about that. Um, and you mentioned you sort of moved down the market cap scale, and, and we sort of touched a little bit on kind of reshoring and onshoring and a kind of industrial renaissance alongside kind of infrastructure bills and kind of trillion here for this and green transition. Um, do you want to touch on the stock that, that we've just put the chart up here for um, Martin Marietta and how that sort of fits in the portfolio? Yes, I'd love to. So Martin Marietta is a is a $30 billion market cap company, so a pretty substantial company. Um, we have held in the fund for, for over a decade. Um, in some ways, it's an incredibly boring business, but we like we like boring businesses, actually, that grow. And uh, what does it do? So it, it, it has quarries. Uh, and it basically picks rock, you know, mines rock, um, aggregates, aggregates. Uh, aggregates, so whether it's uh, rock or gravel or sand. Uh, and uh, the great thing about rock is uh, that you can't ship it very far. Yeah, of course. Uh, and because it's heavy um, and the shipping costs would make it not worthwhile. So you don't ship rock from China, unlike a lot of sort of foreign competition. So the so you don't get foreign competition. In fact, you can't ship this stuff more than about 50 miles. So it's actually an, a local oligopoly. And what they've been doing is they've been building market share in aggregates. And, and as a result, one, when you do that, over time, you get pricing. So yes, there is pricing per tonne for rock, but it's not like a spot market like oil or yeah. gold uh, where you can trade it. It, it, it. In fact, prices never really go down. They only go up. Yeah. Um, and, they, and what's happening right now is that prices are going up high single, low double digits. In fact, low double digits recently because... Um, They've been building their share, they're building their local shares. And at the same time, these big infrastructure projects, um, what do they want? They want security of supply. If you're building a $5 billion semicom- semifab, yeah. you know, it's a very small percentage of your cost, but you must have it. If you don't have it, you, you can't build it. And so they've been taking price. Uh, it's what we call... Um, a high-value, low-cost business, and we have actually Accenture. I would say is one of those. Martin Marietta. We probably have a large percentage of the portfolio. What we call high-value, low-cost business models, where what they provide is a very small percentage of the total costs yeah. of the product, but but very critical. And so Martin Marietta can compound earnings and free cash flow in our view, double digits for the foreseeable future. So actually, they've got great great pricing power because, as you say, it's such a small percentage of the overall cost it's almost yeah. not it's less than it's 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 a few percent of the cost yeah, of okay. the, you know, if, really it, if it's a house it's a few percent of the cost of the house if it's an infrastructure project is it's a it's a mm. fraction of a percent and the wonderful thing about this business is um, even if you don't have volume you know volume is zero one or two percent you can get double digit price and we think that that can last for a very long time and so I say a very boring business, uh, but one that is, I think, can compound yeah. uh, for a long period of time. And what sort of basic multiples does it trade on if we were to compare it to S&P, for example? Yeah, so, so over time, Martin Marietta has traded between 15 and 30 times earnings, roughly. Hmm. Um, and you might say, gosh, 30 times earnings, that's a lot. Um, it is a fantastic business. With our view, a very high inevitability of outcome. We don't think we can 
you can mm. replace the rock with something else. Um, and so it has traded at a high multiple. Uh, today it's trading at around low 20s, low to mid 20s probably. You can see the stock's had a move up here, so um, it's probably trading closer to the mid 20s now. But again, if, you, if you're confident in that free cash flow compounding, that should come down you know, materially over time. Mm. And so um, you know, uh, 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 the other factor is that as you increase prices, your returns on capital go up. And as, you, as your returns on capital go up, you should, all else equal, pay a higher multiple yeah, for the stock. Should, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're going through a period where returns are structurally increasing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the sort of Biden stimulus and infrastructure spending and semiconductor plants that you mentioned, it all kind of plays in, and green energy transition all kind of plays into eating a lot more rock, isn't it? It, it does, and um, you know they are a purely domestic U.S. business, mm-hmm. which you know instantly when you look at our portfolio, um, we have a bias towards mid-cap companies, sub fifty billion. It's close to half of the fund, and and, and those tend to have a bias towards more U.S. revenue. So yep. this would be a good good example of that. Yeah. And, what, and, and just for the, for the listeners, what proportion of the revenue of the S&P and the fund is from the U.S.? Because is, is it 40% of the U.S.? Six, around 60% uh, is, um, uh, is, is the S&P and we're close to 70. Okay. Yeah. So you are, you know, wholly kind of somewhat yeah. more American focused fund. Yes. And those are round numbers. I mean, yeah, 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 sort of sure. slightly. And that's obviously <coughs> because the mid-cap side is, is far more domestic. Yes. Yeah, so we've got, you know, we've got Martin Reddy, we've got... <coughs> heating and plumbing distributors yeah. that are very domestic focused. We've got uh, lots of little industri- interesting little in- industrial mm. companies, engineering and services companies mm. that are more the, US biased. On the sell side, are these sort of under-researched names? Or I mean, they're still huge businesses, but do you think you can get um, you can you can miss sort of price anomalies a, a bit better in that mid-cap space than the larger businesses? Definitely, I do. Um, and I had some experience where I started out my career uh, in, in the US and then mm. I switched to becoming a European analyst covering um, you know, insurance and software and pharma for an you know, for a, for a American buy-side firm. Mm. And uh, the reason I switched back to the US is I just felt that in, a, in, in Europe, if you had a really good company, um, it would be quite well picked over and, and well analysed yeah. and, and well covered and probably have a little bit of a premium. It's amazing how many companies that there are of sort of 20 billion, 30 billion, 40 billion uh, and so on in America that don't have fantastic coverage. Mm. And they might have one or two analysts that, that understand it well. A few people have got that, their name Do you know what? It. That really surprised me. My naivety, and you, you know, we obviously had the, you know, a brief call last week to, to catch up. And when you said that, it, I assumed that kind of the US market would be more mature and there'd be lots more coverage. But it, it's it, yeah, it's surprising that com- companies of these size are just not looked at. I think it's partly to do with just the size of the market. I mean, there are so many companies Mm. in America that, uh, you know, of a size and scale. um, It's just a much deeper market. Um, I mean, it's not to say there isn't coverage. There is coverage. And there's certainly a lot of buy-side coverage. Mm. Uh, You get on the conference calls and, you know, there's a lot of questions. But um, I I, I think there are still inefficiencies, which is what drew me back to the U.S. as just this wonderful landscape for... Identifying opportunities and, and compounding, finding these the, the quality companies with good good returns, good businesses um, that can compound. Interesting. And um, one of the last stocks we've we've kind of asked you to talk about um, is is perhaps one of my favourite businesses um, because this comes back to the heart of the kind of low cost, high value, isn't it? Um, 
if you're doing your tax return and your accounting software, um, you don't change that stuff, do you? Because it's got all your data in. So mm. do, do you want to talk us through one of the stocks in the portfolio that um, I'm a fan of? Absolutely. So Intuit, um, a wonderful business. Again, we've held in the, the portfolio for for many years. Um, it is, yeah, exactly, it's a low-cost, high-value business. So the, the, the majority of their revenues come from two businesses. One is uh, small business software, <coughs> accounting software. Um, so um, QuickBooks, you may, QuickBooks have, you may have heard yeah. of. They yeah. advertise quite a lot here in the UK. Um, very dominant market share of, of, of accounting software for small businesses. And then they have a product called TurboTax, which is tax preparation software. Everyone has to do their taxes. Well, not everyone, but um, you know, 40 million mm. uh, tax returns that, that Intuit prepare, and they have the dominant market share, 60% market share of online tax returns in the US, and they charge a small fee every year uh, and um, make a very high margin. So it's a wonderful 60% business. 60% market share. 60% market share of the, the online, online tax preparation. That's Interestingly, incredible. most tax preparation, most of the value, the revenue dollars are captured offline in the advice market. Right. And um, uh, they... Because there's a button you can press, isn't there? If, you get, if you're putting your data in and you don't understand something, you can sort of link through QuickBooks and it will, you can talk to someone, can't you, which is an upset, essentially. Exactly. So, so, so one of the really beautiful things about this business over the last few years is what they call live. So QuickBooks mm. live. Uh, TurboTax Live, and they're moving up the value chain. So if you want to do a tax return preparation mm. and you want to get advice 24-7, any time of the day, um, you uh, will get directed to uh, an accountant who understands through AI exactly where you are in your tax return, what, yeah. your pro what your challenge might be, and will help try and solve that for a price that is more than the basic cost of the uh, of the. Uh, the TurboTax tax return, but way less than what you might pay by going to a yeah. uh, HR yeah. block yeah. tax yeah. store. Yeah. And so they've been moving up the value chain, and this is why they've been growing in the teens. So their small business, amazingly, uh, has is continuing to grow in the upper teens revenue. Wow. Uh, their small business um, accounting and payroll, uh, and tax grows at around 10%. Um, and so, uh, again, they've been just moving up the value chain in both, and that's been driving great growth. They've got fantastic margins mm. in, the, in the 30s, and, mm. and you get to sort of teens, teens, upper teens compounding of mm. earnings, maybe even 20%. Yeah, no, it's a, a really great business, and, and, and it, the stock was a bit blow-off toppy in 2021, isn't it? And it sort of, you know, the stock went through a kind of bit of a difficult 2022 I mean there's a, there's a lot of sort of macro concerns in here isn't there so if you're you know, if you're a company that's focused on small business and the world is worried about a recession you're mm -hmm. probably you know a, a recession and small business closing down in the states is probably not good for Intuit's business in the short term so you know some of that froth has come out of them yeah I mean, I'd sort of look way. at it perhaps slightly differently um, you know there was a bubble in these software companies interest rates were zero mm -hmm. market took off and then in the correction um, these high PE stocks just got hit very hard mm -hmm. as rates went from zero to 5% mm -hmm. very quickly. So I think the multiple, frankly, was probably a little bit yeah. <laughs> elevated. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, people were concerned about small business. But in mm -hmm. fact, the fundamentals of Intuit's business, when you look at this chart, have continued to compound earnings in the teams right throughout this. So this, the stock chart doesn't really do sort of justice to the mm -hmm. business, which you know has defied you know any bear 
uh, around you know small business slowdown, mm-hmm. uh, and so um, you know that's why the the, the, com- the, the, the company is sort of continues to perform and the stock has recovered. Mm-hmm. No, it's been great. Um, and then we sort of move on, Anthony. I mean, we're, we're in the midst of earnings season. Are we halfway through earnings season yet? Sort of quarterly. Yes, I'd say we're probably over about, halfway about through. Halfway. Yes. And what are your sort of key takeaways so far? Is there any sort of themes that jump out at you? And we've talked a little bit about Meta, etc. But you know, if sort of under the under the under the top stocks, what what sort of jumps out at you as to how companies are doing? I think what jumps out is the resilience of mm. of America, of the American economy, um, and. Uh, Yes, we've had this adjustment from interest rates from zero mm. to five and potentially a housing slowdown and a consumer slowdown, but the consumer's resilient, the housing market's resilient. Um, GDP growth, is it looks like it's going to remain reasonably strong yep. this year. Um, and just the resilience of America and, and their ability always to cut costs uh, and manage earnings, manage margins. Um, the, the one caveat to that is that we have seen a supply chain adjustment. Mm-hmm. So, so when you look at certain er- elements within, say, semiconductors or the consumer, or um, you know, industrials, there has been uh, you know, because supply chains were so constrained during COVID, and um, they took on too much inventory, and so we've been going through an inventory destocking, and that has been impacting earnings to an extent. But it feels like we're getting through that, whether it's in healthcare and, you know, biotechnology, you know, having too much bioprocess equipment or, you know, analog semiconductors. We're, we're sort of coming through that. And so I'm actually quite optimistic that, um, you know, we're coming out the other side of that and when supply chains are normalizing. So, look, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been hopelessly optimistic about America, have been for the last 30 years and, and remain so. Um, so, um, you know, take what I say with a kind of pinch of salt. But I think, by and large, you know, what we see is sort of re- reasonably healthy. Good. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good to hear. I mean, the market is sort of expecting, what, 8 to 10% earnings growth for 2024 yeah. as a whole, which um, maybe. But, you know, if if companies are as agile as you say yeah. and there is no yeah. recession and again mm. you know we, we joke now pretty much every week if you go back to episode one you know when rates started going up <laughs> episode one was over a year ago we thought there would be a recession there's no way we thought that the western world would cope with five percent interest rates mm. without there being um, and we had a bit of a wobble the housing market in the u.s yeah, wobbled and yeah. the, you know, the housing market in the uk is sort of flatlined and consumer spending's hardly gone to the races but <laughs> the u.s economy just carries on growing and, and you know corporates are doing Mm. a very good job of managing their way through that mm. so yeah you can you've been absolutely right to have been optimistic uh, for the 25 years that the fund's been in existence and uh, and indeed more recently in the last 10 or so years um, any more sort of thoughts or anything that you wanted to uh, pass on to the listeners other than um, you know make sure you're not under owned in US equities no I think that's it just you know look there's a lot of challenges in the world today there's a lot to worry about but frankly you know, in my investment career, there's always been there's always been something yeah, to worry about. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, if you buy good companies um, and leave them alone, and you've got confidence in their inevitability of that compounding, um, you you should do pretty well over time. Mm. And uh, that's what we that's what we try and do: put together a portfolio of businesses that we think are world class businesses. But you know, if we're wrong, we're not going to lose too much money. Yeah. Uh, we get things wrong occasionally and, and, and just like everyone else and um, and then we move on but uh, no we feel pretty good about America yeah. good 
Not sure looking forward to the great broadening out of returns away from the away from the top seven. Away from the top <coughs> seven. Mm. Well, with that, thank you very much for your time, Anthony. It's been very interesting. Um, we'll have you doing some handstands mm. next time, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, for now, we'll give it a miss. Thank you all for joining Thanks us. Thanks for sparing me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Um, any questions, let me know. Jonathan.raymond at quarterchievit.com. And uh, we hope to see you next time. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you.